there's this question or tension around is the goal of, of coaching to achieve peak performance for your athletes and, and team, or is it um, social emotional growth and sort of the, the life lessons side, you know, which one is it? And so ambitious coaching is really saying, actually it's both things and they're not at all mutually exclusive they're completely mutually reinforcing. And to be a successful coach, you need to aim at, at both of those things. Welcome to the Coaches Club podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Julie McCleary to the podcast. Before I start telling you about Dr. McCleary and our conversation, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be hosting a free Zoom Q&A with Dr. McCleary on this coming Sunday, August 8th at 8 p.m. Central Time to take a deeper dive into this episode that you're about to listen to. I'd love to have you join us to ask questions, discuss, and ultimately figure out how to apply what we talk about in this episode to our coaching. Spots are limited, so save your spot today. Just go to the show details and click the link to register for the free Q&A. Dr. McCleary is a professor and researcher at the University of Washington. She serves as the principal investigator for two of the center's main projects, Ambitious Coaching and The State of Play, both of which we discuss in detail in this episode. Prior to joining the University of Washington, she ran a consulting business, worked in the education policy field, was a high school teacher, and was on the U.S. national rowing team as both an athlete and a coach. Today, we talk about the research behind ambitious coaching core practices, feedback pitfalls for coaches, routines, time on task, psychological safety, and more. A few quick things before we hop into the episode. First, if you enjoy this episode and want to get a free copy of the notes from this episode, go to coachesclubpod.com to get a free PDF of the notes from this conversation. And if you want to sign up to be a part of the free Q&A with Dr. McCleary, just click the link in the show details to save your spot. And finally, we just kicked off the first round of free virtual book clubs covering the Coach's Guide to Teaching. Here's what two of the coaches that are participating in the book clubs had to say. Coach Rogers said, I love being able to hear how others are planning to implement as well as what their biggest takeaway is. The application piece is what really sets this apart for me. We too often read and acquire knowledge and are left without a way to apply it or don't know the next step. And Coach Given said, I really enjoy the collaboration and small group breakout rooms along with the whole group discussion. It's always helpful to have multiple thoughts and opinions on whatever the topic is. I'm about to open the next round of free book clubs, so if you want to save your spot in an upcoming book club, go to cgtbookclubs.com to join the waitlist and be the first to know about upcoming book clubs. Now to my conversation with Dr. McCleary. Enjoy the episode. All right, coaches, really excited to welcome Dr. Julie McCleary to the podcast today. Uh, Dr. McCleary, I would love for you to just start out and Tell the listeners about your research at the University of Washington and specifically about ambitious coaching, what it is and what the findings of that research have been. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, I will. I'll try to, you know, keep it, keep it brief, but um, the ambitious coaching research came out of kind of my start um, as from getting my PhD actually in education and education policy. And so while I had been sort of involved in in sport that whole time and and coaching, it wasn't until after I finished my PhD that I transitioned to doing research in coaching. And I was super interested in bringing the work of teaching and teacher education into coaching. And I know that, I think you've talked with Doug Lamov, who is somebody who, you know, is doing kind of the same thing, but at the University of Washington, um, this notion of ambitious teaching and ambitious teaching core practices really drives the teacher education program there. And ambitious teaching is, you know, there's this conflict. This is not really a conflict, but if you think as a teacher, are you teaching the content? Like, is it my job to deliver mathematics content or is it my job to like teach the students? Right. And so ambitious teaching is this notion that it's actually both and they go together and that your job is to teach all students and be able to have all students engage deeply with the content that you're delivering. And so, you know, I brought that same 
idea again, which is not new to coaching. And we, you know, there's this question or tension around is the goal of, of coaching to achieve peak performance for your athletes and, and team, or is it, um, social emotional growth and sort of the, the life lessons side, you know, which one is it? And so ambitious coaching is really saying, actually it's both things and they're not at all mutually exclusive. They're completely mutually reinforcing. And to be a successful coach, you need to aim at, at both of those things. So that's sort of the ambitious coaching side. And then the core practices are sort of the things that coaches do day in and day out that leads to success in those dual aims. So literally what you could walk into a gym or um, onto the pool deck or go out on the field and watch a coach do day in and day out that are the highest leverage activities that would lead to success in um, social, emotional growth and well-being of your athletes and peak athletic performance. Oh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> no, that, that's really good. And that was really succinct. I, there's 15 of them. I, I actually, I, I just want to read them really quickly uh, okay. just so that the, the audience can hear all 15 of them. Cause sure. that was really fun for me just to read through those 15. And like you just said to think, okay, these are the, like these 15 different things that you would see a coach doing. Uh, right. So the first one is instruction. The second one is diagnose three feedback four adapting instruction five framing communications, six sequencing, seven routines, eight allowing space, nine practice planning, 10 goal setting, 11 competition management, 12 social emotional skill building, 13 shared decision making, 14 relationship building, and 15 leadership development. There's a lot there. And yeah, yeah. yeah, it's an ambitious list. I like I I looked at it, I was like, oh my goodness. Like I think I do maybe three or four of these things well, but there's so much here. And so I guess my my follow-up question to that and just reading those out loud. In your research and your experience, which ones on that list do you feel like are either the ones that coaches typically struggle with the most? Or maybe they're the ones that are neglected the most because they're maybe they're they're unaware of the importance of them. I don't know. Mm-hmm. E- either way, I'm just really curious about either of those. Yeah, ones. it's a great question, and I'll just say a little bit about the um, the core practices first before I answer that question. Which is that one thing we we well one there's a deeper description, sort of a paragraph long, two paragraph long description behind each of them. Um, that just describes a little bit more of the how and why of those and um, that they also, there are a lot of them and they, none of them happen sort of independently. They're very much overlapping and you're, you're, you're always doing multiple of them at the, at the same time. So they're not necessarily discrete and they're also not meant to be a checklist. Like some, something that we talk with coaches about is like, okay, there are lots of ways to give feedback just because you can go down the list and say, oh, I instructed, I had a diagnosis, I gave feedback, doesn't mean you're an ambitious coach, right? You could have a kid up to bat and they take a swing you don't like and you say, that was horrible. Like, you might as well close your eyes next time, right? That's, that's not the, <laughs> that's feedback but that's not the kind of feedback we're looking for. So part of the the core practice work is to identify the way in which ambitious coaches do all of those things and sort of help. And you've had guests on who, who talked about that. I was John Kessel, I think, you know, talked about feed forward. Right. And that's, that's one of the things that we really focus on and the feed, the, the core practice of feedback is that it's future oriented. So just, just to give that um, context to the core practices, um, and a lot of times coaches, they come into our trainings and they're like, oh yeah, I definitely do these things. And yeah, that's exactly the point. These are things that coaches do. And this gives us all a common language to talk about them and to kind of improve on them together and, and create a professional learning community where we can talk, talk about them. Um, and so we always ask coaches to your question now, um, we always ask questions, which, the question, which ones are most familiar to you and which ones do you sort of struggle with or are kind of new to you? And what's interesting is that um, allowing space is one that comes up a lot. Oftentimes for new coaches, that is one that is unfamiliar, right? I mean, I think that's kind of um, 
we still have a, a bit of a sensibility in the coaching space of this sort of command and control approach and the, the skills and drills. But though I do know that certainly this idea of allowing space for creativity, exploration, problem solving is something that is creeping into the coach education space a little bit more. It's it's new and different for coaches to talk about, well, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm not really coaching? Like, what are the parameters? How much space do I give them? You know, do I just let them do free play? So I think allowing space is probably the one that we have the most conversation around and is the least familiar to folks. Whereas um, relationship building, I would say, is the one that a lot of coaches come to us with like, yeah, this is my bread and butter. This is why I do this. And um, I know relationships are at the center of everything. And I, you know, I want to be able to build relationships with my team and have them build relationships with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes sense as far as the allowing space goes. And I'll just read the little subtext under that on the graphic. It says, create and support regular opportunities for athletes to engage in exploration, display creativity, and practice problem solving. And like you said, I think that is, for a lot of coaches, like it's kind of vague. Like, what does that mean? How how do I do that in my coaching? In in large part, maybe because they've never seen it done. Uh, Would you maybe share, share an example of what that might look like in mm-hmm. a practice context of a sport? Sure. Um, I'll just give a really simple example that, that we use in our trainings is where, you know, we put some folks in a line and we have cones out and we say we're practicing cuts and we have them, um, you know, one at a time sort of jog to the cone and cut back and then jog to the other cone and cut back, right? So it's sort of classic drill. Um, and everybody takes their turn and, and this is sort of very controlled environment. And then, um, we take those same folks, we put the cones in a box and we have them play various forms of tag. Right. And obviously in tag, they're making the same kind of cuts, but they're doing it in game, you know, in, with the game sense. And so I know a lot of the coaches that you talk about, talk to, probably talk about that, you know, putting everything into the context of the game or the context of movement and decision-making patterns that they're going to need to have in the game. So that's just a good example of trying to randomize a little bit and um, facilitate movement within the context of what it's more likely to look like in competition that is giving folks the opportunity to try cutting and allowing, allowing the space to problem solve and do it their own way, um, as opposed to drilling it into them. Oh yeah. That's so good. I'm coaching a fourth grade basketball team right now. Mm -hmm. We've played a lot of sharks and minnows, uh, (laughs) instead of, instead of traditional dribbling drills, uh, we play sharks and minnows. And like you said, or we play tag sometimes while they're dribbling and it's way more of a game context. And I think the other thing with something like that is they understand the structure of the game. So literally their working memory isn't consumed by understanding the game they're playing. It's just consumed by trying to achieve the objective of the game, which is right to escape and to cut and all those things. And I think actually I, I was doing an interview with a, a coach the other day and he, he was talking about how he designs practices and kind of layering and teaching to, to teams as far as styles of play and systems. And he said something that was really interesting. And I, and I think it kind of aligns with this allowing space is that when he wants to put a new layer in or a new concept of their, their defense whole start by just giving them the objective and then letting them play to try to solve the objective. So, Hey, I want to make sure that we, we don't allow the other team to do this. And then they just play and he's evaluating, okay, are we, are we doing what the objective was? And then after he's given them the objective, they've tried it, then comes in with an intervention of, okay, now this is like, this is the perceptual cues we need to be reading to, to meet our objective. And then from there, actually the last thing that he would do is put in uh, like the technical skill they might need to be able to, again, achieve that objective the best they can. But yeah, like you said, that's, that's kind of reverse from what most coaches right, it's reverse, it's reverse engineering. Yeah. yeah and as it, a player. And so it's, yeah. it's uncomfortable because I mean, the reality is, most coaches just coach however they were coached. And they, if you ask them why they do the things they do, it's 
uh, because that's the way it's been done or that's what I did. And right. yeah, so I, I think that's, that's awesome. And, and I love those practical examples of how we can, yeah, allow well, space it, for learning. And I think it's, it's harder. I mean, it's, it's harder to set up exactly, you know, what the constraints are that you want folks to work within and then to watch, like to develop a technical eye to watch random movements and pull out of it what you want to see and then be able to take a timeout, you know, so let's say you're playing tag and you see someone uh, make it an awesome cut and, you know, really have a great ath athletic stance and a lot of power. And, and so you want to pause and pull that out and praise them and, you know, just have that as a learning moment. That's really different than being able to just watch one person at a time, make a cut at each cone. And it, it's actually, it's a lot more complicated. And I don't know that we do a great job of teaching coaches how to sort of do both at the same time, which is like, this is random and it's allowing space, but actually you need to apply your technical eye and your technical expertise and, and tactical understanding of the game in, in the same way. You're not, it doesn't absolve you of that, you know, um, that responsibility to watch. So oh, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's layering them both together. Yeah. And, th and that just making, that's making me think of some of Doug Lamov's work that he shared in his latest book, but just the reality that like experts and novices see differently, they literally are, are seeing the game differently. And so, like you said, for coaches, it's hard because they haven't trained their eyes to literally observe for yep. what they need to. But I think what you're saying is so important is that within, within maybe a more random or game like game that you're doing in practice, it's really important for coaches to know what they're observing for. Exactly. So that ultimately they can give the right kind of feedback. And so mm -hmm. I guess let's, let's just talk about feedback. Cause that's one of the, one of the parts of ambitious coaching, right? What, what are the typical pitfalls that coaches can fall into when it comes to mm -hmm. feedback and how can they get better at giving feedback that helps players improve? Those are, those are great questions. Um, let's see. So I just want to say in terms of the, the randomized approach and having to apply the, the, the technical eye and develop your technical eye, that's what we talk about around the core practice of diagnosis. And we try to help coaches like when they're watching something random like that or a, a sort of game-like situation that they're actually taking notes because it's really hard to, until you're an expert, as you say, to be able to see something and remember it and recall it to, to have the debrief that you need to have after the game. So writing things down, taking notes with what you're watching is, is super important. And then in terms of giving feedback, I mean, I think one of the biggest issues I see with novice coaches um, is this feedback is too general, right? I think, um, we rely a lot on good job or that was great or well done, or um, even if we're trying to give directive or prescriptive uh, feedback, we might say like, you know, cut harder or get lower without really giving like the detailed and specific instruction about what we mean up front or on the back end. Um, I use a video of, um, Keegan Cook, who is the, the um, volleyball coach at the University of Washington, had just had a great run in the NCAA tournament. And we watch him give feedback. And he, in this one video clip we use, you know, he pulls someone aside and he said, I really like that approach because it was really intentional. And, the, and he says to the athlete, do you know what I mean by intentional? And she's like, mm, not really. And he said it was heel, toe, heel, toe. Right. And so he gets down to like, do you know what I mean by this word? Here's what I mean by this word. And so now we're on the same page moving forward about what I liked about that. And I think that's the level of detail that um, good, good feedback comes in. So I say that's probably, that's probably the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, too often we assume athletes know what we're talking about and sometimes they have no idea what we're talking about. Right. Which makes sense though, because they've probably been coached in the sport by five, six different people who all use different language and terms, sometimes about the same concept and all like, 
clarity of language, I, it just, I don't think it can be understated how important it is to ambitious coaching, to actually helping players get better. Because like you said, it'd be really easy for that coach to just say, I liked how intentional that was. And then send that player on her way. And she's like, well, I did something good, but (laughs) what was it? Right. But then now she really knows, oh, this is the thing I'm going to repeat. Like, this is, this is what I did well in that. Well, and I think another thing that we talk about with that level of detail um, is how it actually helps with relationship building. So when you're able to tell an athlete that you have really seen them, right? Like I was watching you closely and I saw that heel toe, heel toe, or I saw, you know, you, you have a, a great, a great set on that play that happened, you know, three plays ago, like athletes feel seen. And this idea that my coach is invested in my improvement and like, we're in this together is um, a, a piece of that relationship building. So in that way, the sort of technical feedback piece and the relationship building are related. We, we talk about it as complementarity. It's like, like we have this goal that we're in together. And I always say, I know that, that um, you know, a lot of coaches and, and teachers hear the saying that um, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And sometimes, like what I like to say is, yes, that's absolutely true. You should talk to your athletes about their life off the court for sure. But when you connect the knowing and the caring, when you connect your knowledge of the game with caring about their improvement of the game, like that's, that's gold. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much you care if you can't help them get better. Right. Yeah. You have to be able to help them improve at the actual sport that you're coaching them at or your efforts at care and relationship, they just won't be very effective, right? Because those players will leave practice and say, coach has no idea what he's doing. Like I'm, we're not getting any better. Right. And that's just frustrating for everyone because the kids are there one, hopefully because they love the sport and two, because they want to get better at it. So yeah, that those go so hand in hand. I like that you, you hit on that just continuing a little bit more on the thread of relationship building. What are some other things that, that you guys found in your research with ambition coaching, ambitious coaching that coaches, coaches need to keep at the forefront when it comes to relationship building? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just, I'll sort of stay on the, the feedback piece with the relationship building, because I think what we've seen, and I haven't, haven't, fully quantified this, but in a lot of the the video um, analysis that we have done around core practices, I want to say that feedback is about 75% of what we see coaches do like in a given practice. And so it's such an important core practice that it's really where um, relationships can be built. So, you know, one thing that is important in relationship building um, and feedback is the like proximity to athletes when you're giving feedback. And so this idea of yelling something from far away is not, it's not a great way to get someone to pay attention to you, to connect with you. We, we use this term that Brene Brown uses, which is engaged feedback, right? So if you really want want to to go deep with somebody to get them to improve and be in relationship with them around the improvement, you kind of need to sit on the same side of the table together is what she would say. And in coaching, we would say that's like, pulling someone aside to have that conversation, right? You know, doing it in quieter moments and not, you know, necessarily publicly and visibly shouting it in front of a lot of people, especially if it's like, you know, some big truth telling about something that needs to change. So that sort of proximity and engagement um, we find is, is really important to building trusting relationships and having athletes sort of willing and able to listen to you. And if you tell them a lot of good things um, in proximity, and in an engaged way, then it's going to be a lot easier to tell them the harder things in that, in that same engaged way. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's really good. Let me tell you a quick story from uh, my basketball practice last night with these 10 year olds. I think you'll like it. (laughs) There is a kid on my team who he loves to shoot the ball. I mean, that kid has never seen a shot that he does not like, (laughs) and it can be frustrating for his teammates. And it's 
definitely challenging for me at times because I'm like, oh my goodness, like what, what are you doing shooting that shot? Right. Kid loves to play offense, loves to shoot it. Doesn't really like to play defense very much. And we were playing a game in practice last night and his team's getting beat and he's just as like stopped playing defense. He's just like standing and watching. It was a stoppage in the game really quick. I, I grabbed the ball and I said, I said, Carson, come here. And I just put my hand on his shoulder and said, Carson, you have to play defense. Do you think your teammates are going to want to pass you the ball on offense if you don't play defense? Good. No. I said, no, they're not going to. You have to play defense or your team will get beat. You cannot right. stand and watch. Yeah. And, and then I said, all right, here we go. And we started playing again. And, and he did like, he played defense from there. And, and I, like, I was, I was very serious in the conversation too. Like he understood, mm-hmm. I think my, my tone was like, this is unacceptable to not, to not mm-hmm. give effort in this part of the game. But I think part of what was powerful too, was the proximity of like, it, it was me and him right next to each other and, yeah. and really clear on it. And then the, one of, one of the best parts, and I, and I, I wanted to make sure that I came back to this at the end of practice, we usually take 60 to 90 seconds after practice to just do what I call celebrations, where we just recognize kids and they recognize each other for where they kind of upheld our standards or, or we're great teammates. And, and I just said, Hey, I want to celebrate Carson. Cause I, Carson, I gave you some hard feedback. I told you, you had to play defense and then you did it from there on out. And I love that you did that. So I think yeah, as you were talking about the, the power of proximity and that feedback, mm-hmm. I was just thinking of that. I was like, okay, good. Yes, that's so right. Because it would have been easier to shout that feedback at him from the sideline yeah. of mm-hmm. you have to play defense. Like, right. what are you doing? Right. And and I was re- I was firm. And afterwards I was like, man, maybe I was like too firm in my feedback. But I think the fact that I was right there and it was even though we were on the court, it was it was more of a one-on-one. I think was, was powerful to one kind of maintain the relationship, but then two for him to really hear the feedback and take it and apply it. That's a, no, I think that's a great example. And I would say the other thing that you did there in terms of um, high quality feedback is that you put it in the context of the team. And so that's another thing we say is talk about like, we like the, we're in this together. This is the way we do things here. Um, you know, we, we need you to play defense because we're all in this together and we can't have good offense unless we have good defense, right? Like I think this sort of, it also for younger kids takes it a a little bit of out of what can feel like, oh my gosh, like I, is there something wrong with me? And it sort of puts it in this larger, like, okay, here, this is what we do. So I just need to do what we do. No big deal. Right. So I think that's another, another great thing you did. And then and then I would also connect it to another core practice where you have the celebration routine. And I think routines are an amazing way to build relationships. So it's another like good connection between the two to the two core practices, relationship building and routines. And we would call them relational routines where you bring a team together and you have a huddle and you maybe debrief or yeah, celebrate um, different aspects of the practice or you know, do a huddle before practice and talk about what it, what people's goals are. So any of those kind of routines that sort of involve the, the celebration and the calling out individuals and just really setting goals and, and establishing what you're up to and after as a team and defining yourselves are, are really important to relationship building as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. And it's been powerful just, yeah, to have those routines built in. And that was actually kind of what I wanted to talk about next was routines, but not as much in the sense of relational routines. I think those are really important, obviously, but practice routines and Mm -hmm. really routines, routines that help maximize time on task Mm -hmm. in the practice environment. I'd love to know what, what you guys found around that. What were some, some really positive or ambitious coaching routines that you guys have found coaches use to increase learning and time on task? I guess what I would say about the time on task is that it's the routine itself. It's the routinization of practice that allows kids to know what's coming next and therefore transition more readily and spend more time on that next thing. So I think what what we talk about is 
establishing some degree of a practice routine, especially the younger, the kids, the, the more um, this is the case because those routines will reduce anxiety. They will increase the feeling of psychological safety and they will keep time on task because everybody gets like, oh, after we get a drink of water, we immediately come back to the circle and that's where we're gonna you know, huddle up and, and get the next thing to do. So if they know what's coming, you make your life so much easier. Um, and it can be hard. I've, I've coached my fair share of uh, 10 year old basketball and, and 10 year old little league, and you don't have a long season and you don't have a lot of time with them. So it can be really hard to devote, let's say like the first, I don't know, two weeks of practice. Let's say it's only two days a week to establishing what those practice routines are going to be. And, but just with everybody knowing, okay, I come, I put my, my bag here, I go check in with coach and let him know how I'm doing. And then I find my throwing partner and we throw till everybody's throwing. And then we do our next thing. Like it with my 10 year old baseball team that could take two full weeks till everybody gets it. But once they've got it, it's locked in and we never have to talk about it again. And so I think that investment, what I would say is like investing in those routines up front is the way to increase time on task throughout the, the whole season. And then, you know, with older kids, it can be more, um, it can be more about the routine over the course of a week, for example, if you're, if you're practicing five days a week, but just the reduction of anxiety and not coming to practice and being like, oh my God, what are we gonna do today, right? I, I think is really cannot be overstated. I think we hear from coaches who are like, but in the game, you never know what's going to happen. So everybody's got to be ready all the time. And like, you know, maybe today we're going to do, you know, the one mile test and I want to surprise them so I can see who's tough and responsive, but actually like, that's just creating anxiety. It's sort of um, fueling this, this sense of physical and, and psychological lack of safety. And you want your practices to be as safe as possible. So people can take risks that then they're going to learn from to, to make their performance better in the long run. Sorry, that was a little bit long-winded, but um, covered <laughs> covered a lot there. It was, a, it was a good question. That was that was fantastic, and you hit on it a couple times in there. But I want to talk a little bit more about psychological safety mm-hmm. and create an environment where athletes feel safe to take risks. And I guess my question really is more around what are the behaviors that coaches have to maybe unlearn. And then the behaviors that they have to embrace to create an environment of psychological safety where athletes feel like they can take risks and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I, I think one is consistency, which goes back to routines and, and being willing to be the adult in the room. And so whether that's consistency in routines and, and practice plans, or it's just consistency with regard to emotional regulation, um, it, it doesn't feel safe if someone's going to be yelling at me. It just doesn't. And I think, as I said early on, you know, this sort of command and control style, this sort of tough love notion, um, it, it just doesn't always work for kids because if you feel like you might get yelled out or called out, like you're just not going to feel safe to take risks. You're going to want to, you're going to want to avoid the challenge because you're going to want to be perfect. You're going to want to stay within yourself. And so I think regulating yourself is probably, um, the main one. And I know, I think you've talked with Megan Bartlett, so you've probably talked, you know, about, about regulation and, um, the importance of that, that an unregulated adult can't regulate an unregulated kid. So that's, I would say is a super big one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I probably have more things I could say in terms of what, um, they could embrace if you want me to. Yeah. So yeah. Like, talk about that. Yeah. What, what so do you need to things, embrace? Yeah. What they need to a- avoid. Um, I'll say one more thing about what they could, should probably avoid, which is punishment <laughs> of any kind. So whether it's like verbal yelling or um, physical punishment, again, that's something that we still see a lot of, even if it feels innocuous, like you don't make your, you don't make your free throws. Um, so the whole team has to run that just, it doesn't create the kind of psychological safety where folks need to feel like practice is the place where they're allowed to make mistakes and it's not going to cost them and their friends, um, something. So I could go on a whole thing about the use of, um, physical punishment in, in, uh, athletics, which is completely, you know, behaviorist approach to that we know doesn't work at all. But anyway, that's something else. And in terms of what they need to embrace, I think it's, it sounds like 
um, you know, what you embrace in your routine with celebrating with kids at the end, we need to em embrace talking about um, feelings. We need to embrace having hard conversations. We need to embrace social emotional skills and it being okay to talk about um, the need to learn to be resilient, the need to learn to um, work hard. Like we, we talk about it as like, being consistent and having routines around social emotional skill building. And so, you know, having a space where kids know that it's okay for me to come and say like, Hey, you know, I had a tough time at school today. And, um, I just, I feel like maybe I'm going to, I'm going to do my best, but I'm not sure I can give it my all being able to say that to a coach is a psychologically safe place. And so the coach has to model and ask for people to talk about their feelings and share their own feelings in order to create a space like that. So I'd say that's something that, that coaches could embrace. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I remembered my, my train of thought that I lost yeah. uh, before this <laughs> season with these fourth graders, I sent out a form to their parents that I had the kids fill out. And I think one of the questions that I put on there was, what is something that you don't like when your coaches do? Mm. And almost every single one of them said when they yell at me and yeah, it, it's what you said. No one likes it. Like who like wants it if our, no one yeah. wants to be yelled at. No, yeah. like if, <laughs> if my boss came in and was watching me teach and afterwards or during actually during it, started during, yelling yeah. at me, yeah, be like, that'd be the worst day ever. And yeah. for some reason, because we're on a court or a field, we've just accepted a bunch of behaviors that just aren't acceptable anywhere else. It's yeah, it's it's mind boggling. And it well, and it, folks will still argue that it gets results. And I, I think we're seeing more and more research that like it just it might get you short term results. But this is exactly sort of the whole ambitious coaching thing. If you're able to achieve peak performance, but ultimately after three or four years with you, your your kids have a loss of self-esteem and sort of don't love the sport anymore. You you haven't achieved the sort of other side of the the dual side of these aims like you haven't helped this kid grow social socially and emotionally and and be well mentally mentally and physically and that's honestly like the bigger half of the equation and you know i i tell the story sometimes about mary kane which you know probably most of your listeners know and her experience with alberto salazar and as an amazing runner at 17 going to train with him and his sort of relentless focus on her performance and the relationship between her body weight and her performance without attending to any of the sort of psychological safety issues or mental health issues that she might be experiencing. And ultimately those mental health issues led her to not be able to compete and train at all. Right. So it's sort of this, this, I don't know if tough love's even the right phrase, it's not, but like this idea that like we can not focus on people as whole people and still achieve peak performance just is, it's it's wrongheaded because in the long term, it's just not gonna work out, right? When we're learning more and more about like USA Gymnastics and the culture of gymnastics, for example, of sort of sacrificing athletes' well-being and really scarring them for the long term, um, you know, because we think we have to do that in the name of performance. And, and thankfully we're learning more and more that that's not necessarily the case and more conversations are happening around that, which I'm, which I'm glad to see. And I hope it will start permeating, you know, youth sports a little bit more, because I think that's probably one of the places where I see it's kind of has its hold um, even more so maybe than at the collegiate level. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that, that more um, as far as, youth sports and what needs to change there before I, I would just say this one thing in response to that, what you said is, is so spot on. You know, I think the hard thing for me as I've been doing this work and talking to these people and my experiences with sport is just the, yeah, it's the reality that unless people are really in this for the right reasons, and unless they're willing to take an honest introspective look and figure out why they're coaching. I, I really believe most coaches are doing it for, for great reasons that they want to positively impact kids. But if, if we're not willing to really consider that and get to a place where we understand our why and how that should affect our behavior. Yeah. It will just continue to perpetuate 
a lot of things that we know just aren't good for human development. And, and they're not, they're not good for the, the athletes we, we coach. And if it's just transactional, like you said, like, yeah, you can get, you can get peak performance out of them for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but the damage in many cases will be just so extensive. And Joe Ehrman has a quote that, you know, like many, many kids are leaving sport worse than when they came into it. Right. And that's coaching. <laughs> There's uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's that like, that's what impacts it. Well, you had, um, you know, when we were talking right at the beginning, you said you got into this as sort of um, trying to understand more about coach development and coach education. And, and, you know, that's really my entry into this too, is like, there isn't any standardized approach to coach education and coach development. And, and that I think is really part of the issue here because um, youth development, if you're going to be coaching youth, there should be sort of a basic understanding of youth development and what you, what children's bodies and brains have the capacity to do. And we're just, we're not there with, you know, that, level of education with our, uh, with our coaches for all like sorts of systemic reasons, because we're not really requiring any training whatsoever, except maybe basic first aid and, and concussion training, which thank goodness we have, we have that, but this, the idea that like kids are mini adults and the adultification of the youth sports space, I think is really one of the, the primary issues that, that we see the sort of lack of understanding of youth development in, uh, in sports. Yeah. One story. And then want to talk about that a little more. I had the opportunity to interview a guy named Sefu Bernard. He is in player development uh, in the WNBA and has been in NBA. He he's a really sharp guy. Really just, I mean, all these ambitious coaching things he's, he's putting them into practice, but we were talking about that same, that same thought about just the lack of education in you know, the youth space. And he said, yeah, Greg Popovich is one of my favorite coaches. I love Greg Popovich. I would not let him coach my eight-year-old son because (laughs) he's not qualified to coach an Mm -hmm. eight-year-old pull on that thread about, you know, child development. And he said, he was like, and even he was like, and I bet Greg Popovich would even say like, I'm not qualified to coach an eight-year-old. Like I, I know how to coach grown people. Like we, and for some reason he made this point. It's like, we let what people do with adults inform the way we coach kids and yep. kids and adults are not the same. Like right. I don't know anywhere else in our society where we do that. Right. I don't, I don't expect a ninth. Uh, we don't expect a fourth grade student to be able to do the same English skills that a ninth grade student can do. But for some reason in sports, it's like, well, if you know, adults do it, then our kids should do it. It's like, what? It doesn't, doesn't fit them. And, and the coaches, they shouldn't be coaching the same way that, high school or college or professional coaches are coaching. And yeah, uh, yeah, there's just so, so much there. Well, tell me about your work with uh, the King County play equity coalition, what it is and, and how you're trying to to kind of change the landscape in youth sports and coaching education. Yeah. And um, just to tie it a little bit into this kind of adultification space, like I, I think that, um, this, you know, as a coach, I, I sort of started all of this as a coach and in coaching education and quickly realized that this is not, um, the coaches alone are not going to sort of solve the issues with youth sport, sports and that this is like, there's this whole youth sports ecosystem that is problematic and that we have adultified it or what I would say, like gentrified it, like adults have moved in to the, the world of youth free play and built these like you know, fancy ballparks and these travel tournaments and all sorts of these, these things. And they've essentially taken over a kid's space with these sort of adult ideas. And, and what's happened there, I think is, is twofold what we've been talking about. It's not great for the kids who are in it because it's not developmentally appropriate, right? It doesn't, it, kids are not, their bodies and brains are not prepared for the level of intense competition that is required of them in the, the sort of, um, travel club system that has been created, but even more so, there are so many kids who are excluded from the system. And that exclusion is really harmful 
to us overall as a society because um, who's excluded is predictable by race and income and, and zip code. And um, we're seeing real declines in um, level of, of youth physical activity and the whole system is essentially broken. So the King County Play Equity Coalition um, was built off of a report that, that, I, that I did um, with the help of the Aspen Institute, it's called the State of Play, Seattle King County. It's one of the, they've done about seven or eight regional reports. So we look at the trends and patterns of, of youth physical activity and access to sport and play and outdoor recreation in King County, and then um, sort of figure out what the systemic solutions are. So that the report was, you know, gave us some findings and some recommendations, and then the King County Play Equity Coalition came together to address those findings. So it's now, it's a group of 110 uh, member organizations who are really committed to trying to change the systems here in King County so that more kids can have access to developmentally appropriate, healthy, safe <laughs> places and spaces and programs to play. So that's the, that's the thumbnail sketch of, of that, but sort of like overlapping this idea of, of what's, what are the issues with youth sports with what are some of these broader societal systems and um, problems that we can address by a, a better investment in, in youth sports accessibility. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's powerful. And what, what role is coaching education playing in that to create those developmentally appropriate safe spaces for kids? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that we found, which I think will be the starting point for some of the, the coaching pieces that we want to address. And just to, just as context, like we started, the coalition was built right before COVID. <laughs> so we've been coming of age uh, as a, as a group during uh, COVID. So it's meant dealing with some some other issues than the ones we necessarily wanted to contend with. But, you know, we have a, in King County, we have um, a large population of immigrant, refugee and newcomer youth. And we found that they are often the most excluded because they have the sort of the transportation and cost barriers, but there are also cultural and linguistic barriers. So one thing that we're doing is um, working on a training specifically for um, coaches that work with immigrant, refugee, and newcomer youth. So that's that would be an example of the kind of things that we'd be trying to do. And then hopefully as, as coaches can begin to understand what are some of the barriers for kids, they can change their approach um, and their programming and they can become more inclusive in, in various ways that makes all kids feel like really safe psychologically within their, their programs. And I'll, I'll just give like a really small example of that, which, you know, it, it seems small, but it's, it's kind of a big deal. Like, you know, my kids, um, my kids have been in various sort of different club programs. So as much as I rail against it, I'm also part of the system, sadly, but um, my, my youngest, he was 10 and he was playing, you know, he had just started club soccer, I guess, which he didn't last very long in, but um, I was doing the carpool. I had a meeting run late and I got him to practice like, and him and his friends, like, let's say 10 minutes late to practice. So I walk him up to the field and, um, the coach says to them, okay, you guys, you got to run cause you're late. And I said, Hey coach, they're late because of me, because I had to drive them there before work was over and my meeting ran late. So I'll run. And I started running <laughs> and the coach was like, no, 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 it's okay. Don't worry about it. But it's an example of like, we have to understand the kids' context and kids, like they don't drive themselves there. Like we're asking their families to leave work, you know, to, to, to cut things short, to spend time in traffic, to leave other kids at home, to do all sorts of things that many families just can't do. And if we start punishing them for like not being able to, to do the things that we think are just the norm when actually they should never be the norm in the first place, we, we can't make kids feel safe. That's exactly the kind of thing that makes a kid say like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore because the, the coach is always mad at me because I'm late, but I can't do anything about it because my mom and dad are working. Right. Like just, that's just a little example, but we, those are the, the types of pieces of education that we need to have about the system more broadly for coaches to be able to be responsive to a broader range of kids and their needs. That's a great example. That's an awesome story too. 
Uh, I'm glad that you share that with coaches. Uh, I, I wish that you, I, if only you had a, like a, a video of that so that you could memorialize it and just like, I mean, that that's a hilarious moment. Like I can imagine his face when you started running, my jaw dropped. Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. but oh, that's not what I, that's not, that's not what I wanted. No, I, but I'm sure that that was like a gut check for him. Like, Oh, uh, Oh yeah. Like why, why would I make these kids run? Like it wasn't, wasn't their fault. Like <laughs> their only way to get here had a work meeting. Like there's just, yeah. why would you punish a kid? Right. And right start I mean, off a practice on that of, it goes back to the culture of punishment too yeah. which is like we need to connect first and we need to find out what was going on right and then and then maybe we you know decide what the consequence is after that but like to go straight to punishment is just not it's it's just not a way to create a, a safe and inclusive space for most kids yeah so. yeah absolutely and then the, the other thing i would say which is similar is just that you know they're really um, is a lack of um, women coaches and coaches of color. And so if we want all kids to feel sort of safe and included playing sports, we, we really need to um, talk about how we can um, bring more people into coaching. And I think, you know, for me, and I do a lot of training of women coaches, that for a lot of folks, the values of youth sports just don't line up with their values. And they see a lot of these things that we're talking about, and they just feel like, I kind of can't take this on. Like, you know, I always felt when I was coaching little league baseball, that not only was I, you know, coaching little league baseball, which is like a super hard job in the first place, not side of a job, it's a volunteer, but it's a lot of time, but I'm swimming upstream against these sort of highly competitive, you know, sort of values that a lot of folks are bringing to the space. And it just was always really hard work to make the case for more practice time or, you know, taking care of kids arms. Like it just, it just shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard to, to like have, hold your values in a particular space while you're doing the job. And I, I think that forces a lot of um, coaches, especially those who might be volunteers out of, out of doing it. And so um, that's another thing we're focused on is like the kind of coach training and um, systems work that can allow more people to feel like coaching is a, a job that they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a really good example. Yeah. It's hard. Like you said, because there's a lot of different stakeholders often with a lot of different values that mm -hmm. while I really think most of them are well-intentioned, I just think most of them don't know what they don't know and right. it can create so many, so many issues. And I think one of the, if the, if the organization running it, isn't really clear on it, mm -hmm. then it makes it even harder for the coach right. to try to shape an experience that is appropriate and positive. Well, I was going to say, that's how I really got into sort of the more systems level work is that you can talk to a coach about ambitious coaching all you want, but if the structure and the context is not set up for them to be able to attend to kids needs and to keep things psychologically safe for them, like if their program requires them to operate differently, um, then they just, they can't go it alone. It's very hard to go it alone. And so it's really the whole system that, that needs to be oriented towards a more holistic vision of, of, of youth sports um, for coaches to be able to do that well and be supported to do that well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was my last question, but I've got a few rapid fire questions for you that I'm I'm curious oh, okay. to know your answers. Here's my, my first one. The most fun part of coaching is. The, um, I feel like in, in, I have these memories of like jumping into a lake with my team a lot of times. And so that like I've coached rowing for a really long time. So that the time when you sort of like it's all done and it's just a release and you all jump into the water together and um, celebrate whatever was like win, lose, draw, whatever. Just like that moment of release when you um, when you all jump into the lake together. That's the most fun. That's awesome. <laughs> I know I'm successful as a coach when. When kids want to keep playing the sport, when they want to stay with it. 100%. If I have a, if I have a kid that wants to come back um, year after year, then I know that I'm doing something right. And that's the biggest success I could have. Yes. Amen to that. 
Or I will also add, I know this is rapid fire, so I'm not supposed to do this. Or when, when a kid contacts me like 15 years later and tells me about something that they remember that I did, that's, that's also kind of a, um, that, that pulls on the heartstrings too. Yeah, absolutely. Here's my last one. I wish I would have known blank before my first coaching experience. I wish I would have known that I was doing it right. Um, and I, by that, I mean, I was thrown into, I had big imposter syndrome in my first job as a coach. I was right out of college and I got thrown into a varsity head coaching role in a very successful program. And I kind of had no idea what I was doing. And it, I was, so I was 21 and the girls I was coaching were 18 And we spent a lot of time like processing stuff and talking and sort of figuring it out. And this was a rowing team. And, um, and the, the head coach of the men's team at the time said something like, if you spent half as much time, you know, rowing as you did talking, you'd be really good. And that really stuck with me as I was doing something wrong, but like, it turns out that I was on the right track and I just, I just didn't know it because I didn't have any, you know, other mentoring or guidance at that time. So I wish I had felt better about what I was doing. Yeah, that's really good. But you just said something I've got to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, sure. You just said you didn't have any mentoring. Talk about Mm -hmm. the importance of mentoring for coaches. I mean, absolutely. I, I had a mentor. So after that experience, that was high school experience. And then I I went on eventually to coach sort of high level, uh, national team level rowing. And I did, I had a mentor, um, who I, I worked with for about 10 years and he was an amazing, amazing coach was from Bulgaria originally. And he, he just taught me so much. He was one of the first people to, um, adopt, um, the use of video technology before it was like on your phone. Like we used to carry around these big cases of, of, of video equipment. And anyway, he was amazing. He passed away, um, unfortunately, at a pretty young age. And I took over the program. And when I took over the program, I no longer had a mentor. And that is one of like the biggest regrets of my coaching life is that at that time, I didn't seek out somebody else to sort of fill his shoes and to be my advocate and my mentor and to talk me through um, what turned out to be a really hard, hard job. And so I always tell that story to, um, to the coaches that I work with that, you know, in everything that you do, having that support system and defining it and having regular touch points with that advocate and mentor um, is what's going to keep you in coaching longer. And I didn't do that. And it was actually, uh, honestly, the demise of my sort of elite coaching career, I would say. I also had three kids during that time. So that that had something to do with it. But having a mentor who could have walked me through what it was like to coach at that level while having kids would have also helped. So I absolutely believe that's an essential ingredient to longevity as a coach. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, Well, before we hop off, share with people how they can connect with you and learn more about the work you're doing at the University of Washington. Sure. So um, our center at the University of Washington is called um, the Center for Leadership and Athletics. And I wish I knew the the website address off the top of my head, but I don't. So I'm not going to be able to share that with you. And, but you could look it up and then I'm on Twitter at, which is how you found me, I think, Luke. So I'm UW Coaching Lab. And I post a lot of my thoughts there. And also the King County Play Equity Coalition is kcplayequity.org. And love for you to check that out and learn more about what we're doing there and, and think about how you can bring some of those ideas to uh to uh, your city or region as well to help transform the youth sports space. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode and thanks again to Dr. McClear for coming out of the podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a free Q&A on Sunday, August 8th at 8 p.m. Central Time to dive deeper into the topics we discussed in this episode. Just click the link in the show details to save your spot in the Q&A and you'll get emails with the Zoom link as well as a form to fill out and submit questions to ask Dr. McCleary during the Zoom.
And if you'd like to get a free seven-page PDF of notes from this podcast episode, go to coachesclubpod.com or click the link in the show details to download a free PDF of notes. And if you want to join the wait list for an upcoming book club on the Coach's Guide to Teaching, you can go to cgtbookclubs.com or click the link in the show details to save your spot in an upcoming book club. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.